This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I don't know a lot about home ownership. I don't know a lot about purchasing a home. I, You know, if not for my wife, I probably never would have purchased a home. I was very comfortable as... Hi, <laughs> I was very comfortable as a renter. She was not and is not. And uh, it was... What you um, say makes no sense. And she's much more the home ownership type than, uh, than I am. In any event, we bought our first home three years ago, and I was struck by a number of things. The biggest thing that I was struck by is that it seemed like, and I'm not trying to be insulting to anyone here, but it seemed like at almost every stage of the process of buying a home, someone was ripping us off. And... Even people that I thought were my friends that I thought would look out for my best interests. I don't want to name any specific names here. Even they were ripping me off. And the people that I thought were being the most helpful to me, I would talk to real experts, some of whom were strangers, and they would say, oh, no, no, this guy's ripping you off six ways from Sunday. There's no reason that uh, he should be charging you for that. I mean, it was not a pleasant experience at all, the process of purchasing a home in any event. A lot of this begins with the realtor. And realtors across the country are rethinking their jobs. And realtor is a job that a lot of people do as a second career. A lot of people do part-time. A lot of people do as something kind of on the side. And a lot of people make a lot of money with this. Now, I, I have a lot of friends that are realtors. And uh, a lot of them are great people. I'll be honest, though, I have known a lot of realtors over the years that are a few aces short of a full deck. They never really impressed me with being intelligent. They never really impressed me with being uh, kind or honest. And, uh, you know... I really chuckled a few years ago. I watched the television program Family Guy. And there's an episode where Brian is uh, Brian is a dog. Brian is standing in front of a house that's for sale. And he's got a new pair of teeth. He's got a new set of teeth, new set of veneers, new set of choppers. And a lot of real estate agents, especially male real estate agents, They all look like they have these big fake teeth that are too white and too smiley for a normal person to have. So just to give you the context, Brian is standing in front of a house that's for sale with these brand new teeth of his. And a couple that is looking at the house, they mistake Brian for a real estate agent. Oh, good. You're already here. I'm sorry? Can we ask you a few questions? Uh, yeah, sure. Is this a good neighborhood? Uh, Yeah, it's a great neighborhood. 
A lot of families, good parks, uh, six fire hydrants, but they are unavailable. They are previously claimed. They belong to some badass. Okay, but do you think this house will hold its value? I don't see why not. It's got a nice porch. And the yard's got plenty of room for little ones. Although that's really up to the two of you. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so sorry I'm late. Let me show you the house. No need to. Your partner already sold us on it. Sorry, I, I, I didn't realize they thought I was a real estate agent. You are a real estate agent. You just don't know it yet. What do you mean? Look at that smile. You're a born salesman. <laughs> you should come work for me. Huh. Never thought I'd be in real estate. You think I can handle it? Every other divorced mom at my kid's school is a realtor. I think you can handle it. <laughs> so anyway, realtors across the country are rethinking their jobs and some are backpedaling from the profession fearing that the heyday of their business is over why a court verdict last month apparently stands to radically alter the way real estate agent real estate agents are paid for their work and this could result in far lower pay for the 1.6 million men and women Veneers and all who sell homes as their main job or as a side hustle. Realtors were already facing the effects of rising interest rates, which very bright people, including John Katzmatidis, predicted would, um, if not destroy the real estate market, at least slow down the real estate market significantly. So the rising interest rates have put a chill on inventory, as was predicted. And it's helped bring home sales down to their lowest level in years. Uh, The Wall Street Journal profiles the case of Nicole Knowles Collins, an acupuncturist, 51 years old, in Florida, who got her real estate license three years ago when the pandemic shut down all sorts of businesses like hers and home sales were taking off. So this woman says lower commissions from the homes she sells in Florida, which are priced between a hundred grand and three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, wouldn't be worth her time, especially now that business at her acupuncture studio is back to pre COVID levels. US real estate agents drive ninety percent of home sales. Did you know that? So why is this all relevant now? Well a federal jury in Missouri found that the National Association of Realtors and large brokerages conspired not to kill John F. Kennedy, but to keep costs associated with home sales artificially high by effectively locking in commission rates, even as home prices have skyrocketed. Let me tell you something. I did not watch one minute of this trial. I did not read one sentence of dialogue until the jury reached their verdict. I did not even know this case was happening. But I will tell you, I absolutely believe 100% that the jury got this one right. In my view, there is no doubt that realtors and large brokerages were conspiring to keep costs artificially high. So they're now predicting that more than half of agents, as many as 80%, could lose their jobs or leave the profession amidst continued class action litigation. There's one bank, Keith Briette and Woods, according to the Wall Street Journal, 
that predicted over time the $100 billion annual commission pool on home sales in this country could be cut by a third. A spokesperson for the National Association of Realtors says it will appeal the decision. So we'll see where this goes. But a potential outcome, if buyers are asked to pay brokers up front, is that lower-income first-time homeowners or communities of color might forego hiring agents to represent them. So realtors earn their living on commissions, which have stayed pretty locked in over several decades at about 5 or 6% of a home's cost. That share is paid for by the seller, which is in turn shared by the buyer's agent. So this model according to the class action attorneys for the homeowners across several Midwestern states, they say this model has inflated housing prices and suppressed competition. And this verdict in a federal court, there's a federal trial verdict, could lay the groundwork for widespread changes to commissions, though some residential brokerage firms predict the existing pay structure won't change. At this point, it's really more questions than answers. But some people are saying that this this is a shocking decision. The I don't know if I mentioned the ultimate price tag here. This is a $1.8 billion, with a B, dollar antitrust decision reached by a jury against the National Association for Realtors for essentially price fixing. Some people say that this could rearrange the housing markets. This, they're saying this blow to what I'll call the middleman economy. It's actually not my term. Matt Stoller, who writes a wonderful newsletter on monopolies called Big. He, I just stole that from him. But the middleman economy, this kick in the teeth to them might be a huge benefit for home buyers. So it's very interesting. There's a lot going on when it comes to antitrust right now. Wall Street is increasingly nervous that Google is going to lose their case. The antitrust division is amping up their investigation of Ticketmaster. And then um, you have this decision, which is a big blow to the realtors. So when you think of the American dream, not me, but an average, normal, sane person, what do you think of? You think of home ownership. Right? How does the song go? Two cats in the yard, uh, multiple bedrooms, a white picket fence, a kitchen. That's the American dream. The house is not only a place to live, but it really is a key vehicle for middle class savings in a way that has come to epitomize American citizenship. Many of our community institutions, whether we're talking tax rates, whether we're talking uh, school systems, They revolve around the House and, you know, Congress and other policymakers, they recognize this dynamic. We have a massive multi-trillion dollar financial safety net for housing and for housing finance. That's loan guarantees. That's flood insurance. That's tax concessions. The American home is iconic. And so, too, are these middlemen, the realtors and the real estate agents who help us buy and sell them. So I wonder where this goes. Realtors also make great villains in movies. Remember American Beauty, the Annette Bening character? She's a perfect villain.
the realtor matters so much in America because the home matters. And it's a job that does take skill in spite of what they say on Family Guy. And it does take instinct because each house and each buyer is unique. There's a lot of intangibles. But realtors in America also have this very unique commission structure, which leads them to charge among the highest rates in the world. As I said, it's about 5 or 6% um, of the home price in this country. What do you think it is in other countries? It's 1% in the United Kingdom or Singapore. This middleman business takes in about $100 billion in revenue each year. It supports millions of realtors, but it's also costing us money. It costs Americans who buy and sell homes a pretty significant chunk of their life savings every time they buy or sell a house. Realtors were a significant part of uh, this, you know, whole thing. And now I wonder what this decision, this $1.6 billion decision is going to mean for the future of home purchasing. What it's going to mean for the future of realtors as a profession. Because there's also another case in Chicago going to trial uh, next year along these uh, along these lines. So it's a, a very precarious time in the real estate business and i'm curious what you think as a consumer as an american who's an observer of the economy as a real estate agent but matt stoller for instance who i mentioned he's predicting that the housing market is likely to come out much cleaner in the end with good realtors still doing great business and he thinks that it's going to be a win curious how you view it 800-848-9222. I don't have a specific take on the finances of this or the legality of this. But I will tell you, I got the impression when I was purchasing a home that everybody involved in the process was ripping me off. And uh, I think maybe this will, I don't know, tip the scales back in favor of the consumer. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. The original Rick is in original Jersey. Hello, Rick. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you doing? Anyway, about this, uh, the real estate agents, I've always thought that it was just unfair to say anything, that you get 6% of the price of the house. Well, Frank, how much more work does it cost to sell a $5 million house than it does a $1 million house. I mean, it should be a some kind of like a, a flat fee, no matter what price the house is. I mean, it's got to be harder to sell a clunker than it does a $5 million beautiful home. And yet the guy selling the clunker is getting less money. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's an I excellent mean, point. That's an excellent yeah, point. Like, thank you. Uh, I mind if you went far between. Um, just like a waiter's. The tip is based on the price of the food. Well, is it really that much harder to serve a a $100 meal than it is the poor waitress at the uh, diner? She's working just as hard, but she gets $5. The waiter gets 50 for the same work because of the price of the food. And the people are getting ripped off. Why do they have to pay $50? Because their food costs more. It doesn't, the person serving them isn't doing any more work for them. If they did a dance and a song, maybe okay, but otherwise, why am I paying 10 times as much to this guy than I did the waitress who probably gave me better service? 
So tell me what you think a uh, a better model is for how real estate commissions and re- the real estate broker process should work. I well, I, I I'm not a great businessman, but just kind of common sense would be how are pay people. First of all, the fact that we have to pay uh, if there's a company that's selling houses, they need to pay the people an hourly wage. Because I had a friend who was a real estate agent, and he he was a pauper. Because, you know, people would pull out at the last minute. He was getting clunkers. We were, you know, I live in out of the great area. And he was working as hard as he could, but he wasn't getting an hour away. He was basically, you know, working for himself. And it's like, no, 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 that doesn't seem right. The guy who owns you is a real estate agent. He gets part of your money, but you're doing all the work. Right. They should have to pay an hourly fee to these people and figure out how to charge us a fair price. We did a hundred hours to serve your to sell your house, so we charge you. Well, you know, I wonder, Rick, and, and thanks for the call. I wonder about maybe the possibility, and maybe this is impractical, but maybe the commission, rather than being solely paid for by the seller, and I realize this is going to sound very absurd, but I'll go ahead and say it because it's not the first nor the last absurd thing I'll say on today's program. What if the buyer and the seller split the cost of the real estate commission fee. Wouldn't that be an incentive? Well, okay, maybe that wouldn't work, but I'm just throwing stuff out there. I find this decision absolutely fascinating, and I'm curious what you think the implications of this are. 800-848-9222. In the Wall Street Journal article on this, Josh Meacham, who's a, a broker in Arizona, says there are, exactly what I alluded to earlier, there are many more questions than answers about this. Does this mean we're not going to have a job? Does this mean we're not going to be able to do listings? Does this mean we're not going to make as much money? Should we start looking at getting a different job? And my heart really does go out to the real here who've had this whole thing, you know, upended. And what about maybe turning to flat fees, as uh, Rick mentioned there? Would that work? Charge house hunters between $2,000 and $5,000 for a clear list of services and expenses. Transportation, time, gas mileage. So, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting thing and potentially has the opportunity to be revolutionary. 800-848-9222. You know, we're airing on uh, Talk 1400 WOND, which is in South Jersey, Atlantic City, that area. And my wife and I go to vacation um, every summer in Cape May. And we really like Cape May, but we always rent a house. And it would be a lot less money if we could just, you know, if we could just uh, buy a house in the long run anyway. But... Unfortunately, we're not in the position to do that. But you look at all these listings in Cape May, and they're a fortune, an absolute fortune. And you wonder what, you know, how much of this is because of the role that these middlemen are playing in jacking up the price. I don't know. 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah. Hi, Frank. Uh, I I like to say first that I hope you I hope you talk to the pilgrims uh, and the American Indians in Massachusetts to uh, in other words to see if uh, for Thanksgiving you know what I mean to get their views yes we, we that will would invite, be nice to do that we will invite some pilgrims and some American Indians absolutely yeah on, on the radio yes anyway then 
I like to say that as far as houses are concerned, uh, I think that maybe cargo containers uh, uh, are in the mode. Carbo cargo containers? Yeah, like those big cargo containers. They could make them in more like a house. Well, I think there is a big uptick in 3D printing. I'm not really sure where what that has to do with the court decision on uh, brokerage fees, but I think I think we are going to see some changes. That's for sure. All right. Um, everything you know about the Bible is wrong. Well, okay, maybe it's not wrong, but it is different. I'm going to be joined by a man who's one of the most eminent biblical and theological scholars in the entire country, who has a new book out about why the Bible began. And the reason may surprise you, although it may not. We'll get into it with Dr. Jacob Wright in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Thrill is Gone. I love this song. A terrific song. Uh, William Shatner also does a version of this song, which is quite good. Um, This is one of the few areas, one of the few songs, where I think maybe the original version is superior to the William Shatner version. Uh, when, When my son and I go to the playground, one of the things that he likes to do is... uh, watch the racquetball players and they're very kind to him they um they you know give him balls and they uh, they're always offering him uh, treats and they're always very very nice and uh, this was playing they play music they have yet to offer me a beer yet they're always drinking beer they yet to offer me one but they're always playing music and um when we were there on saturday or sunday they were playing this song and i have not been able to get it out of my head since then. Uh, so it is a terrific, terrific song. Uh, Dr. Jacob L. Wright is a man that knows the Bible. He is a professor of Hebrew 
Bible and Old Testament studies at Emory University, which boasts one of the world's leading doctoral programs in biblical studies. And he's the author of a new book which has just gotten rave reviews. It has made list after list of some of the best books of 2023. The book's called Why the Bible Began, an Alternative History of Scripture and Its Origins. And I'm just thrilled to have Dr. Wright on the radio. Dr. Wright, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? Thank you. It's uh, good to be here, buddy. So, uh, Dr. Wright, when we talk about the Bible, one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of thousand years is uh, experts, researchers, they tend to come to a conclusion that reinforces whatever their theological (laughs) view is. So just so the the audience kind of knows where you're coming from before we get into your conclusions— can you tell us a little bit about your own faith, just so the audience knows your perspective going into your research on this? Yeah, that's helpful. I think that's always important to do. I am Jewish. I am. Uh, I teach at a Christian seminary in the South. It's Emory University, and it trains pastors. I'm the pastors, future pastors. I'm the only non-Christian faculty member in that school. Of course, Emory is a big university, and I have other roles in the university, but. I'm Jewish, and um, but I'm also a historian and trained in Germany and um, have spent a lot of time all over the world and really open toward all kinds of new perspectives. It's not that I am in any way um, too theological, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty moderate, um, not that... Not that uh, fanatical about anything. I don't think many of my colleagues are either. I think we are trying to understand the evidence, I would say. But I am up against a position that um, that goes to the heart of why we have the Bible. Interesting. So um, that is basically the thesis of your book, why we have the Bible, why it began. Before we get to your answer on that, tell me why that's the right question to ask why should we be looking into why the bible got started why is that an important starting point yeah good that's a good question um so if i think how we approach the bible currently is not about the why although a lot of people are interested in the who you know who wrote the bible that's one of the biggest books written and when it all happened and where that's kind of easy but a bit easier. Um, the what is really what we focus on in our societies. What does the Bible teach on X, Y, Z? And um, and then people argue about what the Bible teaches, or people argue whether the what the Bible teaches is good or bad. And there's a culture war over the the Ten Commandments and so many different kinds of things related to the Bible. What I'm trying to do is shift our attention from the what to the why, and from the who to the why, and. What I mean by that is for us to step back and to consider why is this text even in our possession now? Why did it take centuries, millennia to for archaeologists in the modern period in the modern times, you know, just 200 years ago to go and dig up all the archives of the empires that conquered the world? of the civilizational centers that invented writing in Mesopotamia and Egypt. We knew nothing about these cultures. 
very little bit, very little more than what we could find maybe in the Greek sources and the biblical sources. We knew nothing about these massive empires until we recovered their archives in modern archaeological research. And then we worked hard to, deci- to decipher, to, to decode the languages. They're very, very difficult languages. So why is it that we had to wait all that time to recover the finds that are similar to massive libraries like the Library of New York or of Tokyo and so forth? Meanwhile, this podunky little town of Jerusalem, it was really off the beaten path, produced a corpus of text that was transmitted for generation to generation. It has all kinds of impact everywhere it's gone, producing not only Judaism, but Christianity and, and indirectly Islam. Um, and all of this co- um, is something that really raises the question for me for what, about why. And why that for me matters is because if we focus on the what of the Bible teaching, we miss the, the really extraordinary fact that the Bible exists in the first place and it's it's improbable and maybe the story of how it came to be and why we have it has something more to teach us than just the kinds of teachings its teachings of its laws its thou shalt nots and thou shalts when uh, I know, make, oh, no, no, <laughs> that makes sense, and I, I'm all the more interested in why it began in the first place. But one of the questions you alluded to was was when, and another qu- question was who. The first book in the Old Testament is is Genesis. I, I think it would be helpful in understanding the why to understand at least a bit of the who. Do we know who wrote the book of Genesis? <laughs> yeah. Some people claim that we do, right? So going all the way back in tradition, both Jewish and Christian tradition says Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And then in the 18th century, they started noticing that there are passages that use different names for God and that these different names for God line up with different stories. So already in Genesis 1 has the story of creation the seven days of creation, and it ends by the first chapter. And then the second chapter, if you look at it, a new story of creation begins in which the world is not not yet formed at all. And so you have these parallel stories, and they have different names for God and different vocabulary and different perspectives altogether. So one started seeing that, hmm, it can't be just one person. There has to be multiple sources. And then when and who is really behind this? And that's where we all differ. Some of my colleagues, I guess the kind of the majority opinion is that it's there are these multiple sources and then compiled at a late point in time by this compiler, but that the sources themselves, we don't know who wrote them. Um, They come from different time periods and they're brought together to form the book of Genesis at a late point by an also a, a known figure that they postulate who is a compiler of these texts, who who kind of edited them and put them together as a book. My um, approach is this, that there's an older story, not just story, but various stories, competing stories, stories of various ancestors. Um, to what extent they were actually written down um, is difficult to say, but there are, you can see that there are some different texts um, from different communities. 
so that when we think about Israel, there's Abraham and Sarah, and they have a son named Isaac who has a wife named Rebecca, and then Isaac and Rebecca have these two twin sons named Jacob and Esau. My name's like Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob is, his name is changed to Israel, and he's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. When we look at the names of those 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 that become like the 50 states of the union, we look at them, they're actually just regions. The name like Ruvain or Reuben is one of the names, the oldest. It's just the name of an, an older name for a region. It might have been the name of some figure, but here's the point. The biblical authors are connecting different stories around these 12 sons, as, as well as stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they're connecting them and forming a new story, a larger national narrative, and that is done by scribes who we know nothing about, but what I'm trying to suggest is why. Why do we? Why did they do that? And I'll get to that. I'll let you wait. I'll let you tell me when you want me to disclose well, my. I, why. <laughs> I, I was just going to ask the questions. Yeah, again, if people are just tuning in, uh, we're talking with Dr. Jacob Wright. He is the author of the new book, "Why the Bible Began: An Alternative History of Scripture and Its Origins." Obviously, we want people to uh, read the book, Dr. Wright. But uh, give us the thumbnail sketch. Why did the Bible begin? <laughs> Well, it's it's a 500-page book, so it's not giving away too much by telling you. Um, my my answer to the question why is um, two things: division and defeat. That sounds really improbable. Like when people say, "Why we have a Bible?" Well, God wants us to um, know what God's will is. Okay. Well, why do we have, like I say in the preface, why do why does the leopard have spots? Well, God wanted it that way. Well, we're not going to be that happy with just God wanted it that way. So why are we that? Uh, why are we happy with that kind of pat theological reason when we come to something like the Bible? Um, why not kind of look at the more um, immediate reasons why we have the Bible? Just like well, how did the leopard come to have spots if God wanted it that way? So my logic, my larger question and answer to the why is division and defeat. What do I mean by that? There, first of all, there are two kingdoms at the heart of the biblical story. It's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, north and south like we have in the United States. And they were at odds with each other. And the northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was a very powerful kingdom. Both of them were, however, um, conquered. So the fact that they had warred with each other, that they were in civil wars and... and um, intention but had some kind of special relationship to each other that division between north and south and then their defeat and that the populations of these two kingdoms had to come to terms with the fact that they were no longer kingdoms and they embraced that defeat not all of them just some in their midst but gradually what was created was the bible making their defeat their conquest the point of departure for a whole new project and that is the first nation. It, they came up with the idea of what it means to be a people. And the thing that I call peoplehood or nationhood, but we, we the people kind of thing, is at the heart of the biblical project. It is the, the answers to the question of what is a people in the first place? We know what kingdoms are. We know what our cities are. We know what our tribes are. We know what the empire is who can conquer us. But you're saying that after our kingdoms are gone, we can still be a people. We can still be an exiled, but united people. Well, what's a people? And then how do we, you know, come together in this 
in this larger political community, even when we are separated in time and space. So that's my, my answer. The division, division between these two communities created this larger problem of, well, what unites us across our borders? What do we have in common? So if you look at North and South Korea, I teach a lot of Korean students. Mm-hmm. The, the, the question is like, how, how does one think about a Korean people when, we're, when they're divided by two very different governments? Or how, does, how did Eastern and Western Germans during the, the time of the Soviet Union, how did they, when the, the wall fell, how did they reunite in terms of what do East Germans have in common with West Germans besides just language? What is their culture? Their culture had developed in very different ways. And those kinds of projects um, or those kinds of political problems uh, really prompted people in their midst to think deeply about what is what does it mean to be Korean? What does it mean to be German? What does it mean to be an American if we are so divided? And um, so that division, but on top of that, it's really their loss of power too, their defeat and coming to terms with that defeat and admitting it instead of denying it. That was very central to their, their project that, um, that something new had begun. We can't keep on trying to rebuild the kingdom. We have to refocus our attention elsewhere. We have to become a nation. So the, the Bible is, began because the, the biblical Jews were trying to come to terms with their defeat. Is that right? Yeah. It's, uh, the, the most fundamental reason that we have a Bible is to explain defeat, to make a, a new um, notion of what it means to be a people. And that would not have been set in motion if it were not... For the conquest of these two kingdoms, um, many would. Say, here's why that is so controversial. Many would say, "Well, the Bible doesn't go back to Moses." Like I just said, you know, some of most scholars say they go back to these four sources or some unknown kinds of things. But that it was written primarily during the time that these kingdoms existed, especially when they were the most powerful. That's when, like the courts of David and Solomon, you know, that the. the they um, commission scribes to write great stories. And fundamentally, these texts are kind of the works of propaganda from the palace. And what I'm arguing is, no, these, uh, the, biblical, the, the oldest biblical texts may go back to some, in some form to these ancient kingdoms, but they have been thoroughly reworked and reshaped to create what we know as the biblical text because those kingdoms no longer existed. They were defeated and conquered. And instead of the populations just kind of melding into the new empire, giving up their identity, they resisted and they formed a new kind of identity uh, centered around a text, around their God, their uh, point of transcendent unity, and various other kinds of things in the same kind of way that other peoples tried to construct what we would call national identities. Why has no one examined this until now? I would think the question of why the Bible began is a a pretty important one, and yet I really couldn't find any other book written on it. Yeah, it's like, um, I think it's the problem is, once you start to to answer the question why, right? You're a journalist, and you can ask, one of the things that you do, um, I've listened to your show quite a bit, is 
my you sympathy. Know, go deeper and say to why. Why is this happening? You know, not just to report what's you know the headlines of the news. This is what happened, when it happened, where it happened, and who did it. But then that larger question of why is a different kind of news ref- uh, mode, right? That's where you have to sit back and let's talk about this. Let's get these different perspectives and to analyze things. And it's a tricky thing for one person to explain. Well, why does the why do we have something rather than nothing? Um, and it's also a tricky thing when you're talking about scripture. You're talking about the, a, a holy text that is so sacred to so many communities and people and faith and so forth. And then to come explain, oh, by the way, why we have that? It's just because of division and defeat. Excuse me? Division and defeat produced my text that I know this fell from heaven in the most glorious moment at Sinai. Or this was written in times of, no, it's not. Don't downplay the text by making it, you know, just a response to the defeat, a response to collective trauma, because then it just becomes so human. It be, it's not like it, you can't connect it to some kind of independent out in the middle of the wilderness kind of moment where truth is just revealed in, in, a, in a vacuum. It becomes truth is revealed in the depths of despair in a very dark time when people are coming together to think about a way forward. And that is a very thoroughly human activity. I'm not trying to rip God out of the picture, Mm -hmm. but I'm trying to show that what produces our most sacred scriptures is a human engagement and collaboration from various perspectives around a serious matter of we've lost everything we know and now where, how do we go forward? Let's put our heads together. And that's where, if you will, the revelation starts to take place. That's where the, 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 the deity starts to really come to be in the, in the, in the working and the musings and the collaborations of people around very important questions of their existence. Why do you describe this as an alternative history of scripture what what is the standard that you're deviating from yeah it's it's that it's the idea that that um that, that there's something in the bible that is goes way back the kind of core idea of monotheism most scholars would say it develops to its full-blown form form um, late, but it goes back, and all of these things that we take for granted, like um, you know the Ten Commandments, maybe they're formed that we have them as late, but all of that is just embedded in some kind of ingenious something about the Jewish people had this, or something was just in a, a certain kind of people who would think about God in a certain way. It's all becomes very wishwashy. It becomes unhistorical. And you see historians and scholars who are otherwise really um, quite um, sober about how to explain historical evidence. They give up around that question because they need to preserve some kind of inexplainable part of it to make it mysterious. And what I'm doing, what what makes it so alternative is There's not a whole lot of mystery to it. The mystery is explaining how um, these scribes came together in the night. I imagine doing it in the night. They were working for the palace in the mornings and throughout the day. But in the night, they came together and they had a new project. They were starting to think about how we can bring people together around our text. 
around our laws, around our stories, around our narratives, around our poetry and prophecies and love poetry like the song. All of that was a, a, a innovative attempt, um, but it was it's very much a human collaborative effort, and that takes. Um, it's all, it becomes alternative because it doesn't allow for some kind of way in the in the murky shadows of time that there was always this kind of biblical idea that has just developed into the form mm-hmm. we have in the Bible, but it's always been there. And I'm saying, no, it really just emerges at a point in time. The Big Bang is when the empires of Assyrian Babylon destroy their kingdoms and then they're faced with the question, what now? Uh, you know, Dr. Wright, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time and uh, want to encourage people to pick up why the Bible began on alternative history of Scripture and its origins. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to comment, you can certainly do so. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Uh, very proud also to be broadcasting on Talk 1400 WOND. Very uh, disturbing scene Wednesday afternoon in uh, Atlantic City on the boardwalk there. I was very excited. My wife gave me a return date for us to return to Atlantic City. I think we're going to go the... Um, Second weekend in December, do a little scouting to prepare for New Year's Eve Eve, my big annual bash out there on December 30th. But it was, um, I warned about this a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, a two-alarm fire erupted on the Atlantic City boardwalk on Wednesday afternoon. Crews were called to the scene, and you look at the images, the flames, it looks pretty bad. Shortly before 4 o'clock in the afternoon, right in front of the Resorts Casino Hotel. Resorts was the first casino in Atlantic City. The flames began underneath the boardwalk and spread upward into the casino. The fire spread to the building's exterior wall and part of the sign above the boardwalk entrance. I have said before, there is a, I don't know that they've said this yet, and thankfully there were no injuries reported at the scene. They, the cause of the fire was not yet determined. 
But um, who knows? Maybe that's an electrical malfunction from utilities running underneath the the walkway or something there. But I have said before, there is a huge problem with homeless people living under the boardwalk and setting fires to cook or to keep themselves warm. And when you're when you're setting fire underneath wood, it's a recipe for disaster. We've seen this happen before. And until the authorities do something about the the homeless problem of people living underneath the boardwalk, I'm afraid we're going to see this again and again, again and again. You know, it's funny. They had the um, League of Municipalities this week in Atlantic City. I'm sorry I didn't get to go down there because it's a it's a good time. All the state legislator goes, goes, mayors from around the state go, the governor goes. And I said to my wife, we can go there. We can have a good time. And uh, she said, no, nah, I don't want to hang out with all those petitions. I said, even even um, Don Guardian goes. And she said, oh, well, Don Guardian's fun. Don Guardian's an assemblyman. He's a former mayor of Atlantic City. He told me the story, and I hope it's okay to repeat this on air, that he was cutting some wood in his garage and he chops his fingertip off. Chops his fingertip off. His husband wraps up, grabs all the pieces of wood that he was chopping. There's blood all over the place. Wraps his finger, what's left of it, in blood. They go to the hospital and they got the finger and, and ice and a whole bunch of wood. The doctor goes to him and says, well, Don, you know, we recovered your fingertip. It's great that you recovered it and put it in ice. And we're going to reattach it. And Don says, well, you're just going to sew it on? And he says, uh, yeah. He says, well, can I sew it on myself? And he says, what? What are you going to do that for? He says, I was an Eagle Scout. I can do it. And the doctor says, it's not going to come as good as if I do it. He says, that's okay. Think of what a story that is to tell. Now, that's my kind of guy. That's a man I was glad was reelected. All right. Um, a lot more to get to. Until then, your influence counts. Use it. 